Digging deeper into the day's top stories, you're listening to Jeff Andreas on 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Hello and welcome into the Monday, September 23rd edition of the Jason Andreas Show. And uh, again, thanks again for, for listening. Got a good show lined up for you today. In about 10 minutes time, I'm going to be talking with uh, my usual Monday morning guest, uh, Kyla Lee from Acumen Law. we got a number of subjects to talk about. Going to be talking about the issue of uh, medically assisted dying after a landmark decision came down from uh, in Ottawa last week. Also going to be talking about a potential issue of people who are calling for stiffer penalties for impaired drivers who are caught with their kids with them. Uh, So that's going to be coming up in about 10 minutes' time. Uh, In the back half of the show, I'm going to be speaking with Dr. K. Joel Berry. He is set to come here from Michigan. He is a professor of mechanical engineering. He's going to be giving a workshop at Thompson Rivers University this Thursday from 9 a.m. through 2 p.m. talking about fuel cells and also about climate change as a whole. And to end off today's program, I have a couple of guests coming in studio to talk about the BC Agri Exposition, which is set for this Friday through Monday in Barrier, but to begin today's show, I am talking about an issue that is being brought forward by the BC Federation of Labor. It has started a petition online aimed at getting 10 days of paid leave for people in the province who experience domestic or sexual violence. The BC FED calls it unacceptable that there's currently no paid leave in BC for workers facing violence. Here to talk about this issue and why she believes it's something that should be in place here is Group's Secretary-Treasurer, Suzanne Skidmore. Suzanne, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. So talk about why this is such a significant issue for you and for the BC Federal Federation of Labor. I mean, why is this something that you guys believe that people deserve? Ten days of paid leave if they are a victim of violence. Well, the BC Federation of Labor believes that uh, ten days paid leave for domestic and sexual violence uh, is just a necessity. It's currently, uh, we have some leave that is unpaid for folks, but it is the you know, bare minimum of support that people who are predominantly uh, women are facing in this issue uh, are dealing with is that when they try and leave the situation that they're in um, and they have no financial support and they have no ability to take uh, paid leave from their employment, they're risking losing their employment and financially uh, often what holds people in those situations um, is the financial repercussions of having to take unpaid leave from work. So essentially you think that, uh, you know, if they had 10 days off where they were still be able to collect a paycheck, it would actually allow them to, to sort of deal with their situation or, or help remove themselves from whatever violent situation they might be in. Whereas, uh, you know, if you are taking unpaid leave, I guess you just don't have the resources to necessarily deal with the, the root cause of the problem that, uh, you know, you might be needing to address. Yeah, and I mean, that's the thing, right? It's up to 10 days paid leave. It's for things like attending, uh, you know, at a lawyer or meeting with uh, community services that help uh, people remove themselves from these situations, uh, dealing with moving, whatever it is, right? I mean, the the cost of this in the big scheme of things is, is quite minimal, and British Columbia is one of the last provinces to actually look at implementing paid leave. So we're hopeful uh, that the government will move forward and, and that people will participate with the online survey and the online campaign through the BC Federation of Labor to demand for this action to happen. Are you surprised that BC is one of the few remaining provinces to not have this kind of practice in place? I mean, um, you know, BC, I think, is typically looked at as a very progressive province sometimes, but, uh, you know, obviously this is one area where you believe they're lacking. I mean, are you just surprised to CBC not having something like this in place at this point? 
Uh, I'm not sure surprise is the right word. I'm a bit disappointed. I know that, uh, you know, at a national level and a provincial level, women um, and people in the labor movement particularly have been lobbying for this to happen, for paid leave to be accessible to people to be able to leave these situations. And we've seen it in almost all of the provinces now. So uh, I'm hopeful that we'll see something in this, uh, you know, once the consultation is complete, but uh, definitely feel like BC is lagging behind a bit and that we should be doing better as a province. Uh, so you guys have started this online petition, which uh, which can be found here. Uh, where did I write it down? Um, again, maybe just telling people where they can can find the petition and and be a part of this. Uh, speaking up, sure, get ten days of paid leave here. Yeah, it's real easy. The website is workersdeservebetter.ca. Uh, it's real quick. Uh, fill in the form, and it automatically will send a letter to uh, Minister of Labor and the Minister of Women's Equality, I believe, as well as other uh, as your own MLA. Um, and so it's just quick, easy. Fill in the form and send it off, and it lets the government know how you feel about domestic and sexual violence. I'm here with Suzanne Skidmore, Secretary Treasurer for the BC Federation of Labor. So, uh, when I was looking at the petition today, um, there was a goal of, I believe it was a thousand signatures. You guys were getting close to that 600 mark. Um, so, yeah. so, you obviously are starting to build some momentum. I believe it's been about 10 days now since you've launched that. I could be, uh, maybe, is that right? Is that about 10 days yeah, now? Yeah, close. I, I think we launched last Thursday, actually. Okay, so it's only actually been about five days. Launched the website, yeah. Okay. So, we're doing pretty good. Definitely like to see more people uh participate and, and weigh in um, and hopefully people will express their concerns. People can of course go on the government website and fill out the survey as well but uh, hoping people will connect through our campaign and um, support this 10 days paid leave. Is there any particular reason why you picked a thousand signatures? It doesn't seem like an overly um, you know difficult goal to achieve, not difficult, but uh, it doesn't seem like a super high number when we're talking about the entirety of BC. I think we, when we were looking at how much sort of time we had um, and knowing how many people have already participated in the survey, we just wanted to put a realistic goal out there, knowing that lots of these things are going on and that we wanted to set a goal for ourselves. Once we achieve this, uh, it will likely increase up to a higher goal, but we definitely obviously want more than a thousand signatures and more than a thousand people to participate in this uh, survey. Um, so what what kind of conversations have you guys had, or if any, around this subject prior to launching this campaign? You had mentioned a couple of uh, of uh, ministers where this information is going to be going to once people do sign and, and they do speak up that this is an issue that they want to see taken a little more seriously. But have you guys had any conversations with any ministers, whether it be the Ministry of Labor, um, you know, when, when talking about 10 days of pay leave and why this is something that you guys are advocating for? Yeah, like I said, we've actually been lobbying on this for years. The BC Federation of Labor um, officers and the Women's Committee have been lobbying government. So, you know, over the years we've lobbied, you know, all of the parties in government. Uh, and more recently, of course, we've uh, met with the Minister of Labor, um, had conversations with the um, Minister of Gender Equality, as well as some of the other cabinet officers having conversations about how important it is that, you know, BC... Uh, takes the lead here and does the right thing and implements a 10 days paid leave for folks fleeing domestic and sexual violence. Perfect. Well, Suzanne, I think that pretty much wraps up our time, but thank you so much for coming on and joining me here this morning. I, uh, I really appreciate you taking the time. 
You bet. Anytime. Thanks a lot. Awesome. That was Suzanne Skidmore, Secretary Treasurer for the BC Federation of Labor. And once again, it is asking the province to provide 10 days of paid leave for victims of sexual and domestic violence. If you want to add your name to the cause, you can do so by heading to workersdeservebetter.ca, signing the petition and filling out their information. They also have uh, more information on the cause and why they believe it's important. So if you want to check it out, again, that's workersdeservebetter.ca. Coming up after the break, I'll be joined by my usual Monday morning guest, Acumen Law's Kyla Lee. So stick around for that. Digging deeper into the day's top stories, you're listening to Jeff Andreas on 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Hello and welcome back here on Radio NL. And as always, thank you so much for tuning in. I'm joined on the line now by Acumen Law's Kyla Lee. Kyla, as always, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Happy Monday. Happy Monday. Now, uh, last week you had posted what I thought was a, a bit of a bizarre article when it comes to the use of body cam footage. It said that some attorneys are actually quitting, at least partly because they're swamped by the amount of video footage they have to review from police body-worn cameras. Uh, given how useful this footage can be, is this actually something that, that you see as being an issue here, Kyla? Oh, absolutely not. I think that lawyers that are complaining that there's just too much body cam footage and too much evidence in their client's case don't know how good they have it. You know, in British Columbia, very few police officers wear any type of, of body-worn camera footage. It's not mandatory by the RCMP. Um, it is uh, used commonly in Alberta. Um, almost every interaction with police officers are recorded. And when I represent clients with cases in Alberta, it is just so much easier for me to do my job effectively when I can see what actually happened at the roadside and not some twisted version of events from either the officer or from my clients. Have you ever had any cases today where, you know, you be, have become frustrated by the amount of footage that you've had to sift through? Like, even if, you know, obviously it's a very useful tool and everything, but, I mean, sometimes has there been any issue where it's just so many hours for you to go through when you're looking for maybe 10, 15 seconds of footage? Oh, absolutely. I mean, in cases where people are providing breast samples at the police station or doing drug recognition evaluations, those are usually recorded on camera. I always request the video footage in my clients' cases, and it's just a matter of, you know, finding an evening or a weekend and sitting down with a bowl of popcorn and watching it and waiting for that critical moment, because the one thing that you see on the footage that you know, protects your client or assists your client in their case is worth all of those hours that are spent, you know, watching nothing happen. Uh, have you ever heard of any cases or incidents where maybe, uh, like, whether it be uh, the prosecutors or just police in general, maybe dumping more footage than necessary onto a defense lawyer's plate just so it makes it more difficult to find what you're looking for? Is that something that is an issue at all, or is that, uh, you know, just something I made up? I haven't heard of that ever happening in Canada. We, you know, we have the relationship between prosecutors and defense counsel in Canada is much better and much different than it is in the United States. I have heard from colleagues, and I was just at a conference uh, in San Diego with a bunch of lawyers, um, and uh, I have heard from colleagues in the U.S. that this can be a problem where the, the police will overdo it in the, you know, with the goal of, of burying evidence or frustrating the prosecution. But things are far more adversarial. Than 
there. So I don't think that we would see those types of problems here. And a lot of the police officers that I speak to are in favor of body cams. They agree with, with my perspective that if everything is recorded and you can see who said what and what happened when, then you know what happened in the interaction and it protects everybody better and streamlines the process as far as, as resolution of, of matters and pleas. Perfect. Well, hopefully we can see, uh, I guess you're probably advocating for more use of body cam footage when it comes to police as well, because obviously that's something that uh, helps keep everyone accountable, correct? Oh, absolutely. I think we should have mandatory body cams in British Columbia. We are incredibly behind the times uh, with not having that as a mandatory policing tool, both in British Columbia and nationally. Um, and I think it's, it's doing a lot of people and our justice system a disservice. And it would alleviate a lot of the burden on the courts because you wouldn't have cases where people are telling two completely different versions of events that can't be reconciled. You would have cases where people can, you know, say, here's what happened, here's the video and judges can easily make a determination and people can decide how to proceed with their cases better. Uh, shifting gears a little bit here, another piece that you had actually written about in your blog was uh, calls for people who are impaired driving with kids in their vehicles to be handed stiffer penalties. Penalties are pretty stiff as it is, so um, this was something that I guess uh, outside groups were calling for, but you as a defense lawyer say that uh, you know that's really not necessary as even if stiffer penalties were in place, I mean there's already sort of a precedent for people who are putting other people at risk. Oh, absolutely. I think a lot of people don't understand what actually happens if you get caught driving while impaired with a child in your vehicle. The very first thing the police officer is doing after they're done dealing with you in the investigation is phoning the Ministry of Children and Family Development, reporting the incident to them, and then MCFD comes, they conduct home visits, they do interviews, uh, they investigate the incident, and they determine whether or not there is an ongoing risk posed to the child or whether this was a one-time incident and they take appropriate action as a result of that. So there's no need for stiffer penalties. We already have a process in place designed to protect children, administered by the people whose role it is to protect children and investigate these things. Uh, just taking somebody's vehicle for longer isn't going to stop somebody from, from driving while impaired with a child in the car if they are in that type of situation where the child is at risk. Yeah, and I think a lot of times, too, I mean, it doesn't really matter necessarily what the penalties are. Um, you know, people who are making these decisions are going to make them regardless. So I don't know that having stiffer penalties will matter. Um, and, and as you had mentioned, I mean, obviously it's not going to, to change the process. I mean, if, if stiffer penalties were put in place, um, I mean, is that going to alter the actions that are being taken? Or is it just going to, you know, basically write down the process that's already going on and, and outline it a little bit clearer? Or, I mean, what would adding stiffer penalties even do in these kinds of situations? Adding stiffer penalties would mostly punish the innocent victims of impaired drivers, the children that are in the car. I mean, if you if you want to increase the penalties we get, right now it's a 90-day driving prohibition in British Columbia and a 30-day vehicle impoundment and a fine. So if you make the fine higher, you take more money away from the family. So the family can't put as much food on the table, can't pay for vacations, can't pay for extracurriculars for the child, clubs, sports, etc. Um, if, you, if you make the vehicle impoundment longer, all of a sudden you're taking away a vehicle that's used to transport children to events, transport children to and from school. You make things more difficult for the family on a day-to-day -day basis. If you take away the parent's driver's license for longer than 90 days, again, you're putting that burden back on the child. And yes, the driver and the, and the adult in the situation is going to suffer, 
But there are collateral consequences for the people that stiffer penalties are trying to protect. And I don't think anybody who's calling for these stiffer penalties has really thought through that as a consequence to the, you know, to the youth that's sitting in the backseat of the vehicle that has no control over that situation. Uh, I'm joined by Acumen Laws, Kyla Lee. So a couple minutes left here. So one last thing I did want to touch on before I let you go was, uh, uh, but the decision made last week is it related to a case of 28-year-old Julia Lamb. She uses a wheelchair, requires nearly around-the-clock care as a result of a neurological disease, and she has decided to drop the constitutional challenge that she and the BC Civil Liberties Association had filed a couple years ago, three years ago actually. Uh, that was days after Ottawa had passed the law that limited medical assistance in dying to patients whose deaths are reasonably foreseeable. I guess, what are your thoughts on that decision? That is something that should have a pretty significant impact across the country and, and probably something that you had been advocating for at all. I don't know about advocating for it, but something that you agree with that maybe, um, you know, you shouldn't have to be on death's door to decide to, to take your own life. No, you shouldn't have to be. I, I mean, that ultimately has the effect of shortening the lives of people who want medical assistance in dying because the rules around this are so strict and so significant that people have to make the decision to have their assisted death um, in advance at a point in time when they're clear and of sound mind. They have to be on death's door, so they have to prolong their suffering longer than they may want to, but they also can't take advantage of the opportunity to use assisted dying when they need it the most. And so you have these people who suffer for a long time have to have this moment of lucidity to say, okay, make the decision. When in the moment of lucidity, they might say, you know what, I, I want another two weeks. I'm willing to take this another two weeks. So we've heard all these cases of people who are dying before they want to, because that's the only way that they can die with dignity. And that, that to me is absolutely unacceptable. And I think our government really dropped the ball when they crafted the medical assistance in dying list legislation. Yeah, and probably having someone like Julia Lamb here who is obviously, you know, very aware and cognizant and, you know, she's not ready to take her own life or anything at this point in time, but she was a, probably a good spokesperson for this movement. Oh, absolutely. And it's important to hear the voices of the people who are affected by this. Um, it's important for them to tell their stories about how this law is negatively affecting their quality of life in their last a uh, few, you know, months or weeks or days, uh, and how their freedom of choice, which is what the law is supposed to give them, is actually being taken away from them by this law. Well, Kyla, as always, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to me, and uh, I look forward to doing this again soon. Thank you for having me. Awesome. That was Acumen Laws, Kyla Lee. Coming up, Thompson Rivers University is set to host a uh, engineering professor who's going to be talking about fuel cells and climate change. I'll be talking with that man who will be here on Thursday after the break. The voice of your community, Radio NL 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Here's Jeff Andreas. Hello and welcome back to the program here on Monday, September 23rd, and thanks as always for tuning in. This Thursday, fuel cells will be generating a lot of buzz at Thompson Rivers University at a day-long workshop at the campus's Activity Center Grand Hall. Dr. K. Joel Berry will be running a workshop from 9 in the morning until 2 in the afternoon. The next generation for sustainability is being put on in partnership by the University School of Trades and Technology and TRU Research and Graduate Studies. K. Joel Berry is a professor of mechanical engineering with an aggressive commitment to preparing students and faculty for global social economic changes impacting us here in the 21st century. And I'm joined on the phone now by Dr. K. Joel Berry. Thank you so much for joining me today. 
My pleasure. Not a problem. All right. So I gave a quick rundown there of sort of what you're here to do, but tell me a little bit, if you can, what exactly is the reasoning for you coming here to Kamloops in terms of talking about fuel cells? Why is this important, and, and what exactly are you going to be doing here on Thursday? Well, actually, I'm coming. I'm coming to you from Michigan, and I'm coming to um, to help, hopefully, to educate the the people about the um, about the issues surrounding climate change. I've been a professor of mechanical engineering for almost 35 years now, and and my focus has been on energy and the environment specifically, and. Um, and so I'm coming at the request of the university to to talk about what's happening in the world today in terms of global warming and climate change, to try to educate the people, uh, educate those uh, both on campus and off campus and around the world in terms of um, what's happening to our environment and to talk about the consequences of um of non-action, and of course, I don't believe that non-action is a viable response. And then also to talk about uh, fuel cell technology in terms of how perhaps this certain technology can help to mitigate or to help to uh, reduce the impact of, of climate change. You know, when you're coming here to give a, a speech or, or uh, have that conversation when it comes to climate change and how it's obviously impacting our, uh, our economies and, and our climate, um, this is obviously a perfect time for you, given the fact that it is an election right now, and that seems to be one of the major um, election campaign promises is to do something about climate change. So I guess just, I mean, is this timing just sort of work out for you in the sense that it is something that's very on top of people's minds right now? Oh, actually, the um, the timing is perfect, especially, especially considering that just last week it was an international climate strike day around the world, and kids from 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 schools, from uh, kindergarten to colleges, were actually on the streets, um, just trying to show their concern about the lack of of action by our leaders in terms of uh, addressing the issue of, of climate change. We only need to. To look around and, and see the the increases in the rainfalls, the increases in the droughts, increases in the forest fires, the the increases in the the strength of the hurricanes around the world. Just um, just a couple couple of weeks ago, the hurricane in uh, the Bahamas. Uh, you had a hurricane. Uh, you had a uh, uh, a Category Five hurricane that sat on top of the Bahamas for 36 hours. That is unheard of to have a hurricane with that magnitude to just sit on the Grand Bahama Islands for 36 hours. And and also, uh, I'll be talking about a, uh, a Canadian governmental report that that your government has just put out that even says that the Canadian Arctic and Alaska and that part of the world is melting three times as fast as the rest of the world. I mean, this actually is your own data that says that the impact of climate change is being felt first and initially in in the uh, the colder climates and especially in the Arctic and the Canadian Arctic. So, so yes, my focus is is education first because that's what I do. You know, I am a professor in mechanical engineering, so I'm just there to to help to to get people to understand the impact of climate change and specifically to talk about how it's impacting the Canadian communities and especially the Canadian Arctic 
three times as fast as the rest of the world. Yeah, and, and given that, I mean, obviously there's some, some scary statistics that are out there, and, and it's obviously something that's been sort of on people's minds for a while, and, and definitely a topic of a hot topic of conversation these days, uh, particularly like you mentioned with, uh, you know, Climate Action Day last week, and, and like I mentioned before with this being sort of an election year, and that's being one of the major campaign promises is to do something about uh, climate change. Um, but you also, part of your workshop is talking specifically around fuel cells, so I guess, um, you know, what, what do you mean by a fuel cell? What exactly is that, does this do? Is this just like an electric car, you know, to helping make our electric cars run? Or when we're talking about fuel cells, what exactly does that mean and how does this help in the fight against climate change? Oh, good question. Um, first of all, a, uh, a fuel cell is a electrochemical device that, um, that converts um, the energy within hydrogen into electrical power. So uh, a fuel cell is the cleanest form of power device. It produces electrical power with no byproducts, number one. So if, if you have a device that's operating on pure hydrogen as a fuel, then the, the outcome of, of that device is, is electrical power with the only byproducts being heat and water. So, so because we're talking about pollution, and this is a device that specifically um, represents anti-pollution because there, there, there uh, are no uh, uh, byproducts that are harmful to the environment. And so it's a device that has been used in, in the space program for 50 years in terms of providing electrical power for the uh, space program. And, and yes, and in the last 20 years or so, the automotive industry has been trying to commercialize fuel cells for, the, uh, um, for transportation. But fuel cells are also being used from everything from uh, cell phones, to laptop computers, to stationary power, to, to backup power, to remote to uh, remote power. So a primary use for fuel cells, say for uh, in uh, uh, as an example in remote communities, is to replace replace the use of diesel fuel mm -hmm. because the diesel exhaust and the diesel particulates are a primary cause of, of global warming in that part of the country. And so specifically, I'm talking about how, do you, how, how can you take advantage of, of using natural gas instead of diesel fuel for the uh, production of power and, and, and the protection of the environment. So because, as you know, Canada has the cheapest and the most abundant uh, form of natural gas in the world because obviously you, you have the... Um, uh, access to the fuel is very affordable, and instead of trucking in diesel fuel, as an example, to for remote communities, instead of trucking in diesel fuel across the country to remote communities, um, it's um, why can't a community simply access a natural gas pipeline that's a few meters away? And so by accessing natural gas instead of using, using a diesel fuel, you reduce the emissions into the environment by 90%, and using a fuel cell, you have a, a cleaner source of power that does not pollute with a byproduct of heat mm -hmm. and water, as an example. So that's just one application of how a fuel cell can, can help to clean, clean up the environment and help to, uh, to, to do small reduce noise because a fuel cell does not have any noise pollution and and also reduce the cost. Mm -hmm. By cost I mean uh, 
if you look at the cost of diesel fuel as compared to the cost of, a, of natural gas, every dollar you spend on uh, on trucking and the use of diesel fuel, it will cost you a nickel, cost you five cents to produce that same amount of power with the fuel cell. I'm joined here with uh, K. Joel Berry, a uh, professor of mechanical engineering who will be at TRU this Thursday to talk about fuel cells and climate change. Um, so given all that, I mean, it sounds obviously like like that was a pretty good sales pitch in terms of why we should be using these fuel cells instead of, you know, dirty diesel as they as they often call it and refer to it. Um, why is it so difficult, or how, what's making the transition from things like diesel fuel to fuel cells? What's slowing that process down? Is it just a matter of the technology not being ready avail- readily available? Uh, is it costing? Like you had mentioned that it's going to be much cheaper to actually operate fuel cells than it would be diesel fuel. So what do you think is taking so long to see that transition? Is it just that the technology is too new and or just you know taking the time to, to move over to it or what what is your reasoning behind why it's not more readily available yet at this point my answer I think is is, is somewhat simple number one as everyone knows energy uh, is often not about the right technology um, it's often it's political so so uh, so one it's it's a, a, a political issue in the past but I, but but because there's been such emphasis now placed on on a cleaner environment and using a cleaner technology i think that the politics are now moving moving towards the uh, uh, moving towards the reduction of the use of diesel fuel number two you're right is the fact that uh, everything also also is about technology but i think that um, or i know that that the technology now is available to allow the transition from diesel fuel to the use of a, uh, of a natural gas, especially in um, remote communities. And I would admit that in the past, um, a problem has been the technology perhaps has not been, been um, available, but that's why, that's one of the reasons why I'm, I'm coming actually to talk about the technology that is currently available that will allow the switch from diesel to natural gas to using fuel cells. So I think that the political environment is changing uh, because of the concern about the environment and also now uh, the technology is available now to allow the effective use of natural gas, especially in remote communities. So so I, I think that it's a, it has been a timing issue. I think now all the forces are coming together, both in terms of the political will of the government, the, the emphasis by the people, and also the availability of the technology, and also having an abundancy and uh, of natural gas with the right cost structure is now in place. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to me today. I, I really appreciate it. My pleasure. All right. That was Dr. K. Joel Berry. And, of course, one more time, he'll be paying a visit to TRU this Thursday, running a workshop on fuel cells and talking about climate change. Coming up after the break, the BCAG Expo is all set for this weekend in Barrier, and I'll be talking more about that after this. Your opinion. Call or text 250-374-5345. Find us on Facebook or on Twitter at Radio NL News. This is Jeff Andreas on RadioNL.com. Welcome back in and thank you so much for tuning into Radio NL and joining me here on this lovely Monday. 
This weekend will mark the BC Agricultural Exposition Society's 2019 Expo, and it's all set for this Friday through Monday in Barrier. Here to talk about what's going on in studio is Society President Evelyn Palatsky and Riley Knoll from Yellowhead 4-H Club. Ladies, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you for having us. Thank you. So just uh, give me a quick rundown of sort of what this expo is all about. you got four days, and it's quite a lot of activity from what I understand that's going to be happening. It's nonstop from Friday right through Monday. So our, our fair is mostly about the 4-H individuals that are coming from all over the province actually this year and they're going to be bringing their 4-H projects to show and compete over the three days and then on the Monday we have a live auction and that's where they um, they'll be selling their market projects. So, so Riley, you're with 4-H from, from Yellowhead, I guess. Just what, what is your project? What are you bringing to this event here this weekend? I have three projects coming to this fair. I have a market lamb, a registered ewe lamb, and a pen of three market rabbit. And, and so what do, what do you do? Do you just kind of show off? I, I'm, I'm not super familiar with this event, so you're going to have to kind of fill me in a little bit about sort of what you guys are doing exactly. It takes a lot of work to bring your animals to the fair. So for my sheep, I have to halter break them at the beginning of the year and then wash them, dry them, card them, and then clip them so that they're ready for the show. And then at the fairs, I, I just like to watch how my animals do in the classes. I show in a showmanship class and in a market class, and my ULAM will be shown in a ULAM class. Wow, that sounds like quite a bit to get prepared for. So um, I guess for those who want to just come out and watch, I mean, that sounds like there's quite a bit to just come out and see. You don't necessarily have to be participating in order to enjoy what's going on. Absolutely. We've got, uh, well, we've got all of the show that's going on. We've also got um, educational displays for people to see. We've got the BC chicken growers are bringing their mini educational barn there so people can learn about chickens. We've got our local museums got uh, displays on for uh, their farming. I believe it's all agricultural based. We've also got a local cashmere wool producer that's going to be giving demos. So it's there's tons for everybody to yeah. see. So obviously this goes takes a lot to plan for. You, you mentioned uh, before we went on air, this is something that you kind of basically do year-round is get ready. Once this event's over, you start planning for the next one. Um, I guess how, how many people do you get involved in this in order to make something like this happen? I mean, in terms of organization, I guess just how, how many people does it take to organize? And then how many people do you typically get in, not including spectators, just to participate in the actual uh, expo itself? So we've got a, a fabulous group of people that uh, help us through the year. Usually there's a core group, about 25 or 30 people. It takes all of them to, to get everything organized and whatnot. But then at the fair and, and even before the fair, we also have a huge amount of other volunteers that, that will help us, you know, from everything from bringing sawdust and shavings in to setting the barns up to to helping at, you know, keeping the flow of the show going. It, it's, it's a huge undertaking, and we're so blessed that we have so many great volunteers. And for those who want to, to come out and check it out um, Monday, or sorry, Friday through Monday, uh, what, what do you have to do to get involved? Is there a, an entry fee? Um, no, we're free admission, so everybody's welcome. It's accessible to all. Um, they just have to come out. And typically, the show starts around about 9 or 10 o'clock, but we've got our full schedule on our website. It's bcagexpo.ca, and people can come and, uh, you know, log on to there and find out what our actual schedule is for different times. But we also have evening events and whatnot, too. We have, uh, on the Friday night, we have the obstacle course where the 4-H kids, 
they're able to win money for the next year's projects for different divisions. So that one's always fun. And then on the Saturday night, in the evening, we've got um, our group competitions. So that's where, and it's mostly focused with the beef and the lamb divisions. And yeah, it's it's action-packed from dawn till dusk, basically. Awesome. We're talking uh, the BC AG Exposition, which is set for this weekend in Barrier. Um, do you have any idea how many people usually come out to uh, to spectate? So usually we have, I don't know, around 500 uh, a day, something like that, come out. We've got lots of parking. We've got lots of stand room for them, you know, to watch the show. And we're hoping for all of the schools this year. It's nice that the Pro-D Day doesn't fall on the Friday. So we've certainly invited all of our schools to come out and let their students learn all about uh, 4-H and agriculture. Now, Riley, I guess, how many of these have you participated in? Um, I've participated in the obstacle courses that are on the Friday night. I won one of them last year, which means I can't do it again, but I won money and I bought my market lamb with it this year. Disappointed that you don't get a chance to defend your title then? <laughs> it's all right. <laughs> <laughs> so where does this rank for you as a 4-H member? Is this like one of the marquee events for you throughout the year, or, or how do you feel about this? This is the biggest fair for Yellowhead 4-H Club, and it's... It's one of the biggest fairs, so we try to do really well at it. Right, and, and so do you have a, a lot of um, colleagues or uh, friends, I guess, from the 4-H club that are coming down with you to, to help cheer you on and cheer each other on, that kind of thing? Yes, I do. Do you have any idea how big, how big is your club, do you know? Our club has over 60 members this year. 60, and do you know how many people are coming, everybody? or? Uh, most of everybody, yes. Right on, so that's a pretty big contingent for you guys. So obviously, it's good to have a lot of support there. Um, I guess, is this like a, a big um, bragging rights event for you guys when you compare yourself to other 4-H clubs across the province? Our club is one of the biggest clubs in this district, so it's not necessarily a bragging right, but if we do well at it, it is something that we like to say. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like bragging rights to me. <laughs> um, so I guess, uh, just what do you guys have left to do to get ready? You got, um, what is today, Monday? So you got four days left before things really kick off, I guess less than four days at this point. Um, you guys feeling pretty pretty prepared and ready to go right now? I, I certainly think so. Um, all the 4-H clubs will be showing up in the next couple of days, and they'll get all their stalls decorated and all of them prepared for their animals and uh, people will be bringing their trailers they camp yeah i was going to ask because that's obviously quite a few people who are coming into barrier yes, for the weekend so is it mostly camping or are there other accommodations for people as well do you uh, know what there, people there are we have hotels in the area and and whatnot and some people do stay there but the majority of people do camp because they've got their animals there they you know the kids are up early, and the show goes on until fairly late in the evening. So there's no sheep-friendly hotels in the uh, area. <laughs> no, no, the the animals stay on the grounds. So right on. Well, um, I think that's uh, pretty much wraps up our time. Is there anything else that you want to highlight here before we uh, end things up? Um, so if anybody's in the, the market for some fabulous beef or fabulous lamb and goat and we also have photography projects that are up for sale do come out to our live auction on monday and uh, rbc is sponsoring a buyer's breakfast monday morning starting at 8 30. awesome well thanks so much for coming in guys really appreciate you taking the time well, thank you very much for having us. Awesome. Thank you. No problem. That was Society President Evelyn Palatsky and Yellowhead 4-H Club member Riley Noel. Well, that wraps things up for me here today. I want to thank everyone for tuning in. And, of course, a big thank you to all my guests one more time for joining me. And, of course, if you join me for a short while or a long while, just know I enjoyed our time while it lasted. I'll be back here tomorrow morning at 9.